0: When talking about our veterans and active duty service members as a niche, great strides have been made from pushing to end the 22 per day suicide of service members to reforms on post service medical treatment with the Department of Veteran Affairs and each respective branch. But one front we may not have been aware of is the immigration status and deportation of many honorable soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen. From the Vietnam War to as recent as the war in Afghanistan, today I am joined by a fellow service member on the front line in the fight to bring our deported veterans home. After six years of service, two combat tours, and juggling the United States immigration system, she guides us through her experience in pushing reforms, petitioning to the US government, as well enlightening us on the success and often failure of what it means to repatriate our deported veterans by this organization and Mi Comunidad. So welcome back to the ESL sessions and Mi Comunidad in this special edition. And I do call it a special edition because I actually have a very particular guest who has actually been involved in a very interesting situation that has been happening to both our current veterans, prior veterans of the Gulf War, both Vietnam, the Iraq, Afghanistan war. And even, even as recent as the end of this Afghanistan war with a lot of what's happening mainly involving immigration reform so to to get into the subject i'll go ahead and actually let my guest introduce herself and then tell us a little bit more about what her involvement is what her involvement is in this fight to be able to get our veterans back home yeah
1: um greetings everyone uh thanks for listening um, I'm Denitza James, I'm the executive director for Repatriate Our Patriots. Um, I'm also a Mexican immigrant and I served in the army for six and a half years. Uh, I did two combat tours in Iraq and now my mission is on helping veterans come back uh, to the United States, the country that they fought for, um, and repatriate them after deportation.
0: Got it. So going on that real quick, touching on you being from mexico from mexico how did you get here what is how did that happen for you because one of the things that a lot of people don't understand when when we talk about immigration and also as well for for service members is that a lot of them immigrate from from different countries and sometimes it's illegal sometimes it's legal sometimes it's through a specific vetting process what was your experience
1: so for me my mom and dad actually went about the The formal immigration way they put in an application, they received passports and they had to prove, um, you know, they lived in Mexico. And so at that time, I'm from a town in San Luis, uh, San Luis, Arizona, San Luis, Mexico, and they were working actually across the border in uh, the Arizona fields. So it took, I will say about eight to nine years before I even got a permit to come across and begin going to school, which that was in 1996. Um, so because of that, I received my, uh, my green card in 96 and I had to go to school in the United States. So that's when I joined high school, uh, but my parents worked in the fields in Arizona, uh, in California their entire lives. My mom, we had to make her retire at 65. Um, but they worked their entire lives in, in Arizona. And uh, it's, I am uh, the youngest of six. And my entire family now is U.S. citizen. Thanks to the whole uh, process and the work that my parents put in uh, to put in the paperwork and immigrate all of us. And then later on, us become a naturalized.
0: Got it. And then in- so if i can touch real quick on your history real quick with with that how was life growing up right there in the border towns a lot of people see juarez and and um what do you call it el paso texas you have san luis potosi not san luis potosi sorry san luis obispo and then san luis del rio grande and then you have calexico mexicali and then obviously san diego and tijuana and then with with your family being mainly field workers how was that life for you with if you can share a little bit more on that
1: yeah so for for us um we i went to school in mexico uh, all the way up to ninth grade um so my entire school my community my friends everyone and everything that i knew was in mexico um, my parents uh, will go early in the morning around three in the morning they will go across the border and then get on a bus and go work at the fields. And they wouldn't come back until around six or 7 p.m. at night. And this was every day to include sometimes Saturday and Sundays. Um, So it was, for us, it was um, living on the border meant that we go across the border to work or to buy um, groceries or some things that that we may need at the house. Um, But it wasn't, for me, that wasn't, where I was from and it was it was so challenging that when I started high school um, it was very it was I was because I was pulled out of the environment that I grew up in that I knew that I went into depression at 16 and I was eager to go back to Mexico every Friday as soon as I got out of high school Um, so living on that border town right it kind of made us dance with speak English don't speak English you know, the, pretty much like the identity, right? Like, which, what is your identity? Um, so, but knowing that my parents worked in the fields and this was our life, like we really only saw it like as an income. Like if somebody asked you today, well, hey, what do your parents do for a living? Yeah, they work in the fields and we go on about our lives. Um, their uh, violence from the cartels and uh, gangs in Mexico is pretty bad. And I almost like grew up to being used to it. Um, you know, we will see the headlines in newspapers or in TV. And for us, it was like, oh, yeah, he lives on the street, you know, or we already know who he is, or it, this and that. So it was, it almost became normal to be in danger <laughs> in a town where the cartels and drugs and everything else was happening just every day. And I can only imagine that now in this day and age is people who live in El Paso, and Juarez or Tijuana, right? Their, the violence is even worse than back in in 96, 99. Um, So I can even imagine just being afraid to go down the street, you know, to the store living um, there. So you don't know if you should go to United States and be safe there, but then how are you gonna pay for it? You know, we couldn't afford it because my parents the earnings was in dollars, which in pesos, it was, you know, it was a lot more. So, yeah, it was it was an identity uh, search for, you know, to be honest. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no. And I've seen that a lot, especially with a with a lot of people like myself. I know we didn't really speak on this before recording, but I I also grew up in Mexico until 1999. I still remember the exchange rate. The exchange rate both for dollars and pesos is really just it was usually about a one dollar to like about ten pesos. Yeah, yep. like that's ten how it was.
1: to a dollar. Yeah,
0: yeah. So and then that was that was what the main thing that had drove a lot of how back in the day they would call it uh, the the revolving door of immigration. People would mm-hmm. come in for a couple hour, or a couple weeks, days out of different regions, and mainly some of the people from the border, and they would go work the fields and then come back, and then it would rotate every season. And that's that's one of those mm-hmm. things that. A lot of that, I think, immigration reform, and as well as when talking about immigration and history of, of what it is the United States, when it comes to to a lot of people coming from different countries, is that aspect, is that it wasn't as difficult as it is now to be able to come into the country and to be able to provide, especially when your family, the majority of your family, was back in Mexico.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we, uh, my parents, and as we wanted, uh, my parents saw. Employment in the United States because yes, dollars transferred to a lot more in Mexico, um, and they were able to provide for six kids. Uh, you know, they owned their home there, and that, that was where we lived. So we r- really only came to United States to work and then go back. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's just so challenging because uh, at that time there was even children or like you know kids who will. Come across the border, go to school during the day, and then come back to Mexico. Um, so you will see kids, you know, in line to cross the border just to go to school. Um, so it was, it was really um, how immigration is today, um, which you have to the, all the background checks and everything that that has changed, and uh, a lot of people thinking that immigrants are all like gang members or you know coming you know, to be doing legal things in the United States, I didn't grow up with that. I grew up with, um, you know, immigrants coming across the border to work, be hard workers and be able to provide for their families. Like that was it. Um, They only, my parents only had medical insurance that was provided by the company they worked for while they were working. So when they were not working for them, there was no medical insurance. There was nothing like we all had to just go to doctors in Mexico. Um, so we never even took advantage of any of the resources that United States had. And then we we grew up with a fear of don't ask too many questions. They may you know deport us, even though we were here legally. Um, we still had that fear. You know, don't ask questions. We're not gonna go ask for for you know, assistance or food stamps or anything like that, because we don't, you know we can't have that. We're not U.S. citizens. Um, so even though now that I'm more educated in the subject and I know that immigrants in, um, that come to work are eligible for certain things, right? But they don't ask because of the fear that it may end up affecting their immigration status, even though they're here legally. So I can only imagine those that come here illegally looking for a safe place to be, a safe place to uh, raise their kids and work and earn a living. Um, You know how hard it is to have to be in fear of being deported at all times.
0: Yeah, it's very true, especially. And then one thing I can say from my personal experience is that that's actually more of a lack of misinformation, both what I saw growing up from both the media as well as our community. And then the the continuous barrier of, of accessibility to, to the language is, yes. is one of those things. So moving a little bit forward, though, now mm-hmm. we've, we've you've told me well you've told us that of your experience of, of growing up near the border town, seeing a little bit of what's pretty much escalated now within the past 15, 20 years to just almost complete chaos how do you see the difference between how life with, with the cartels and then with, with the, the violence in Mexico during that time versus now? How do you see the, is there, is there a correlation between the, the influx of immigration and as well as the violence?
1: Yeah. So I can honestly say from living in Mexico in 96, uh, like, my whole life up until 96 uh, from 81 to 96 it has changed a lot on the reason why um, immigrants are coming to the border seeking asylum or coming to hoping to get immigration or even crossing illegally the crime has like you know increased so much and is so in the open there's no uh here and there no like they just don't care in this country as I know in Mexico for sure and uh, working with one of the veterans who's deported in El Salvador we know it's even worse there Um, so the reason why they're coming and the the increase on immigrants coming to the border to seek either asylum or um, you know like uh, humanitarian uh, access is because of how violent and how much risk they're in, you know, their entire family, not just uh, one or two people, like their entire life. And they're really they're coming across or they're coming to the border for survival. Like this is before we will come to United to the border to seek employment, right, yeah. to earn in, in dollars and then go back. Um, right now, they don't want to go back. Like They're coming. Yes, they want to work and they want to sustain themselves. Uh, but it's really for surviving uh, because they're not safe in their countries. And I think that's what I've seen um, recently that immigrants are seen or looked at very different than when I was growing up. Uh, When I was growing up, you know, being an immigrant uh, in the town in Yuma, Arizona, it was really just like, oh, yeah, they're field workers, those are their kids, you know, they work here or whatever. Um, But now is like, like, who are they? Are they here legally? Are they gang members? Like, are they coming to do this? And, you know, so it's so much, I think because of the increases become more hostile towards immigrants, not because we want to, it's just because we don't know. It's a lack of information, like you said, Uh, misinformation, uh, you know, just not knowing uh, what the status of things are really in those countries, because we don't, we
0: really don't care. Yeah, no. And uh, that's a lot of what you said is actually very true. I actually spent a little bit of time in El Centro. And I used to go every so often to Yuma. So seeing all of that and experiencing... Mine was more of a military reason that I was there. But experiencing going back and forth between... You see a little bit of that weird culture clash. Especially within these past five years. Because that's when I was there. And I can definitely understand in you. I understand you and how you say where it, there's a little bit more caution to who's there, especially when when they sent in the National Guard to be able to be guarding the border, and then obviously former President Trump was instituting the the wall initiative. So that was it was a cause for concern, but it was more how can I say it felt it definitely a little bit more fear based rather than understanding. So that exact same barrier that that we've had. Both growing up and experiencing life illegally.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: So moving a little bit forward, though, but because we will be touching on this, on on that separation and as well a lot of the the things you just said with with fear and and that how you were looked at as both a a Mexican as an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit after high school. So you went to high school in Yuma, Arizona. You graduated in two thousand. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
0: And then what did you do after, after you graduated?
1: Yeah, so after I graduated, um, I was able to apply for financial aid, and I qualified because of my parents' income. Um, so I got I enrolled in college, and I wanted to uh, study criminal justice. So I started um, at AWC in in Yuma, Arizona, and I went to college for a year. And the following year, we didn't qualify uh, for financial aid. Uh, You could only apply for one year, so I didn't have, and my parents didn't have uh, the money to afford me going to college, Mm -hmm. and that's when I started, um, or I was thinking about joining the military, uh, because you hear that um, they have, they give you access to college uh, tuition uh, funding, and they're also, um, you become a U.S. citizen. And so quite honestly, when I, I was the one that went and visited the recruiting station um, and I was the one seeking out what can they offer me. And funny that I took my ASVAB test while I was in high school in a cafeteria and English was still my second language. So my score was not very high. Like I honestly had no idea why we were taking this test in the cafeteria, but I took it and I think I scored, I don't know, like a 40 something. So I didn't have a wide variety of opportunities that I could use to join the military. So uh, in 2001, in June of 2001, that's when I joined the military Um, and citizenship was one of the promises that was made to me by my recruiter uh and as well as college tuition back then of course it was before 9 11 so we didn't have the gi bill but there was uh some funding tours uh you know for college and education so my thought on joining the military is get my citizenship serve for uh the uh, length of my contract for three or four years and then get out and go to college and finish my degree
0: gotcha and when and then so Going on the route with trying to get your your citizenship and then as well continue your education. At this point, you're already a a legal resident, and that's your main pursuit. How was that endeavor? How was how was that whole path trying to to navigate what is considered the the legal system in the military, trying to get your your citizenship? And
1: it was very difficult. First of all, there there there's not an office that offers information about that there's when you first enter there's um there's no education no you know hey if you're not a u.s citizen this is where you go so you can receive information about your citizenship there was nothing so being e3 a private right in the army we don't get much say so uh you do what your nco tells you and that's it you show up when you need to be there um and you do your job so it really became it went in the back, right? It, it took it took the back seat to what my role now was. Um, when I um, when I left to go to, um, after 9-11, I actually joined uh, my duty station in Germany in December of 2001. But that time, 9-11 had happened, things were shifting. We knew you we were going to war. So my immigration status was not even a thought that occurred to me. My leadership um, did not, was not accountable for it. Uh, There was no tracking uh, mechanism that tracked how many uh, non-citizens are currently serving in each unit. Uh, When are they due for their citizenship? There's none of that. So it's basically like when the recruiter promised me that and I signed my contract, they forgot about it, Mm. right? So I, I served my contract um they didn't their contract to me was uh, my citizenship and it was not it didn't happen it didn't happen because deployment became a reality in 2003 march of 2003 um at that time i was i was actually speaking with somebody else who had just received their citizenship and um they told me who to kind of contact uh when I was in Iraq in 2003, that's when they became doing the citizenships overseas. They were doing naturalization uh, ceremonies at some like I know they did some like at Saddam Hussein's palace in Baghdad, um, and so I was hearing more about it because it now it was coming up in the newspaper uh, because that's when Bush uh, put in um, put in actually an office that provided citizenship support while deployed. So that's when I started finding out what I had to do. And you would think that because we're serving our country, uh, we signed a contract, we're at war, we're, de- we're deployed, that some of the forms that you have to fill out that any, any person will have to fill out to complete the immigration process will be maybe waived or you know made easily accessible to us, but it's not is the exact same process that a person who is not in the military and lives somewhere in Mexico or Guatemala or Salvador has to do. And those immigration forms are not, they're not easy and they're not easy to fill out. If you make a mistake and you send it, theres you have to start the process all over again. Um, I went and sought uh, assistance from our legal office they didn't have an attorney that was an immigration attorney that knew anything about immigration so i they sent me to the passport office the passport office has not had no idea because all they do is process american passports so the information was not there Um, deployment took a priority Uh, my job my mission and the military's mission took a priority and there was no accountability uh, that held them accountable for making sure that um, non-citizen service members receive their citizenship.
0: Yeah, that's very true. So even when I joined in 2013, a lot of that had actually changed, but they did make a lot of different strides to to try to make it a little bit more easier for for service members going in and to, to be able to, one, be be picked out from the recruit divisions, from from the boot camp divisions to be able to start the process at a minimum at boot camp and then at least finish it either within their tech school, their their A school or or their MOS training, or even at their final command. But even then, from a couple times, I've actually still ran into a couple people that were kind of dropped or forgotten in the system even after they've gotten to their command where the problem that I saw and I still continuously see with a lot of the bureaucratic military system is that it's a lot of information that is never never really readily available and they will and like you said the mission takes priority even in the downtime the mission takes priority even on your on your free days and the mission takes priority above everything else so it's it's still just really disheartening to continuously keep hearing that even after almost 15, 20 years, the system is is still as broken. And and as well, touching on how you're saying about the immigration, the the immigration thing, I actually navigated the, the immigration process by myself at 17. And and I can definitely tell you, uh now doing it a second time for, for my dad, it's it's just as difficult. It's just as ridiculous i can honestly say yes. and and as uninformative for somebody who doesn't speak a second language much less even has a general understanding of what the uh, what legal jargon what what constitutes mm-hmm. citations and codes and and all of these things so i i definitely yeah, that that hits me a little yeah. bit, too.
1: <laughs> and and yeah. And you would think that being in the military, being something that this is what they offer service members when they join, that they will have some type of office specifically for that, right? And that they would even that the commanders of those units will even track how many service members are not US citizen, right? And what is the timeline? How many times how long do they have before they leave out of the military? We need to make sure they get their citizenship before they leave the military it's, it's not an accounted item so this is is it's funny it's it's funny but it's not funny because they so every monday right they'll have a meetings with the commander and like the staff and they track who is late on their credit cards mm-hmm. They track who's late 30 days, they track who's late 60 days, right? And then they get in trouble if they don't pay, but they don't track who is serving as a non-citizen. Something that they promise, right? Something you, you are using a human being for your unit for the mission and you promise them something and you did not deliver and you can't even track it. Um, just last year, we were in Fort Bragg talking about the deported veterans and I asked the uh, garrison commander, I said, how many, do you know how many non-citizen veterans you have in Fort Bragg? He had no idea. He said, I have. He's like, I don't know. Now, this is the garrison commander for Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. And so a month later, we actually received an email from him saying that he actually went and asked his command commanders and Sergeant Majors for that information. And then now they were tracking it, but it, they weren't doing it because they didn't want it to, is it, they weren't doing it because they didn't know, it wasn't an uh, item they need to be accountable for, and it didn't impact the mission because guess what? You have a military ID card. It's not like somebody. It's not like ICE is going to come and pick you up and take you away. Um, you have a military ID card, and to me, that replaced my um, my green card. My military ID card served as my uh, legal resident card so much that I actually went on leave to Mexico twice. And I used my military ID card to come back across the border.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I had no idea where my green card was after I joined the military um, <clears throat> until after I left.
0: Yeah, that's right there. That's one really dangerous <laughs> that I can tell you from that. Two, it's also really, really incompetent for for a, a garrison commander, much less a, the entire commander of Fort Bragg, to not know this because... I'm sure you still remember a lot of the the continuous training about operational security and and maintaining yourself as vigilant as possible from espionage and being approached but they don't take into consideration that hey maybe if at a certain point in time this service member is becomes illegal has family members that are possibly illegal or are still in the vetting process to be able to be US citizens and are maybe struggling a little bit financially Outside entities, if they hold a specific amount, so even just basic information about a, a location that they've been to can be used against it. But it's it goes to the wayside. That's the interesting part. And like you said, it, it is really funny because they will spend the money. <laughs> they will spend the money to send an FBI agent to go interview you before you even join. And... As soon as that's done, they'll they'll let you touch and see secret things and everything. But they won't they won't consider anything outside of the fact that you're a U.S. service member. You're you're serving in this community and we definitely don't have to worry about you, but we have something to worry about.
1: And that's when you can see that you're really just a number Uh, because you're a number in their books um, and they need 50 soldiers to go and do this mission. Yeah, I got 50 soldiers. So they, they, it really does not impact. It does not count towards their evaluations. It does not count towards any of that, right? And um, like you said, is they'll spend the money to send and do those uh, clearances, right? And, and that's when it impacts. So as an immigrant, non-citizen, you cannot receive clearances, you cannot serve in certain jobs that require a secret or higher clearance. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, when we join, we are those jobs are off the list for us. So then the list of opportunities get smaller, right? So they don't really have to spend any money to come and investigate, they don't really care. Um, And like, yeah, like you said, it's, it could be they're a soft target for, let's say, a terrorist group right out that is looking for who can they go and pay to get information. Right. This is a soft target, um, and they, but they don't look at it that way. Um, and I really think it just has to be with the mission, the temple and just the lack of accountability
0: mm-hmm.
1: or what they promise.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely true. And with that, moving a little bit forward, so you you went, you deployed, you you continued to do the mission, you you kept hearing about all this immigration process going on, literally right next to you, but you weren't being able to participate due to what reason, besides being on deployment?
1: Because of the mission. Uh, I went, uh, my first deployment, I was a truck driver. We were setting up fuel points throughout Iraq uh, for either airplanes or um, uh, tankers on the side of the road as they were going into Baghdad or throughout uh, Iraq. Um, Admission took priority. Um, I didn't have a lot of off days where I could go and seek assistance for anything. If they needed me to go on mission, that's where my job was. Um, Even my leadership was not given an opportunity to say, hey, I know you got a soldier who's not a citizen and she wants to look into it, go ahead and pull her off mission, right? And give her a couple of days to go and find out what she needs to do. That didn't happen. I actually was able to go and inquire um, on one of the days that I was off and I was there during the day and it was a weekday. um, And because of mission, I missed my citizenship, my naturalization appointment. Uh, because we redeployed back to Germany. So I missed it in Iraq uh, due to mission, due to always being out uh, out of the gate uh, doing the mission. And they moved my paperwork to the consulate in Rome. And then I was scheduled to go to Rome to do my naturalization ceremony, but we got orders to deploy back to Iraq. So I missed my naturalization ceremony in Rome again. Now, this is number two. So my papers, they go back to Iraq, right? So I can do the ceremony there. We redeployed back. I missed it three times. Mm -hmm. On my second deployment in 2005, um, there was a lot of, uh, 2005 in Iraq was a very dangerous year. I mean, of course, every year, but 2005 was really hot. And so I went through a lot, of, like it was combat trauma and um, you know, different missions that were really hard. And then later on, um, I'm a survivor of military sexual trauma. So I knew that if I went back to Iraq for a third time, I wasn't coming back. So when we came back uh, from, from Iraq in 2006, I wanted out. I wanted to leave the military. I wanted to go as far away from Germany and the unit that I was in Um, because it was my survival instinct. Um, I knew that if I went back, I wasn't coming back. So I left Germany and went to Texas and that's when reality started to sink in because now I didn't have an ID card, military ID card. I did have one that was good for 90 days, uh, but it wasn't like the white official ID card, right? So how can I go back to Mexico to visit my mom and my family? I can't because I looked at my green card and it was expired. So um, mission took priority. Um, Immigration being not an item that commanders are responsible for tracking and actually meeting uh, the goal of them becoming a citizen. It's not tracked, it's not something that they, it impacts their, their promotion, it's not something that impacts their evaluations. Um, it's not something that impacts their mission. They really just do not care.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. And that's, that's honestly what tends to happen a lot of, a lot of the times, both from here and from your experience now, as well as Ivan Ocon and then just even reading a couple of the, the previous people that have both been a part of the repatriate our Patriots program that have actually been brought back stateside and even at the bunker, both in Juarez and, um, I think in Tijuana as well is is both one of the other locations with with that, though. So at this point, you're already essentially illegal in the United States. How did you go about gaining both your your legal residency and then eventually your citizenship before finding out about the Repatriate Our Patriots program?
1: Yeah. So in 2006, um, at that time, my fiance was active duty and he was stationed in Fort Hood, Texas. So when I left the military, I went to Fort Hood, Texas. Um, When I started looking into my immigration status, like my paperwork, like medical exams and all of that stuff, right? Um, He inquired at the local legal office, what would it be, right? We were scheduled already to get married uh, in June, um, yeah, in June of 2006, so, It was by marriage that he was able to actually put in paperwork for me as a spouse to obtain my citizenship. So, not even my veteran status, my combat veteran status, was something that I could use to go and file for my citizenship. Uh, Marriage to a US citizen, to a US citizen who was military, um, was what actually got my citizenship. Um, I even, I had the questions that were um, given to me when I went to to do my test before my naturalization. Uh, they, it was, a, I felt like it was a joke. Uh, they will ask me uh, how many stars are in the flag and just different things right there. That, that I was like, you mean the flag that I wore in combat? Like that flag? You know, so for me, it was almost like insulting that they that we would have to be put through that um despite our time served uh give this country we wrote a bl- a blank check right we were willing to die in combat or anywhere else for the military yet you're still asking me this questions like i did not just serve <laughs> so it was very it was insulting and it was it was just the process that um there's a lot of Loops and holes with the immigrant our immigration system, and it's something that has been going on for years, Um, the law that um, that actually gets any immigrant deported was established in 1996 by um, President Clinton. And this was when the war was against drugs, right? So he was in the the war against drugs. So he implemented the law that anyone who was not a US citizen who committed a felony will face uh, not just their sentence for their crime, but they will face deportation after serving their sentence. Um, This happened in 1996 and I had no idea about it. I did not know that um, because of the trauma that I had faced and uh, the, coping, me- the maladaptive coping mechanisms that I was using to kind of uh, be okay with my PTSD, all of those things were leading me down a road that I could have been um, in, committing a felony, a DUI, right, and I would have been deported, but I had no idea. There was no information given to me when I exited the military. I uh, will usually go through a class. They give you a checklist and all of these things, right? Nobody told me or nobody asked me either. Hey, are you, what is the status of your citizenship? You're not a US citizen. Did you know that this, this and this could happen to you, right? Nobody said that, like they checked the box. I checked the box and I was on my way out. So it, again, like, no accountability, nothing, misinformation, misinformation, and lack of information. Lack of information for those veterans who are not U.S. citizens, right? There is not. There's not a place that they can say, "Hey, if you're not a U.S. citizen, you can go to this office and find out information." There's nothing like that. Um, so it was. It was. It was hard. It was hard to not only have to deal with the reintegration, leaving the military after two combat tours, uh, you know, suffering through some trauma, and then still have to worry about my immigration status.
0: No, and that's that's completely, it's really difficult. I I can't say from personal experience, but that's one of those things that a lot of people that don't take into consideration, regardless of how long you've served in and, and whether you're a civilian, is that a lot of the, the resources that we're both, that is essentially are, are peddled to to veterans both as they're transitioning out as they're they're already out in the civilian world are a lot more difficult just because of the switch over from being active duty to a civilian. So I can definitely understand that that aspect of it with with how things went with your experience. Now with with that eventually you were able to get your your citizenship and your naturalization, and then sorry, your legal residency, then your naturalization. Between the span of that and and after, actually, when did you find out about the the program? Right now, that the Repatriate Our Patriots organization, that program.
1: So I didn't find out until 2020 that this was happening, and. Um, in- one way or another during my advocacy working with another organization uh, for military sexual trauma, uh, we somehow ended up in the same forum about sharing information for veterans. And there was Repatriate Our Patriots at that time. Um, Brandy Ducic was the founder and the CEO for the organization and she shared what was what was going on with veterans, how many, you know, there were veterans deported to other countries, not just Iraq and Afghanistan, but Vietnam veterans who were elderly and who never received any support. So I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it that I, that I, who had been one didn't even know, right? So I got out in 2006 and uh, when i left the military i didn't do a medical evaluation i didn't file for va claim back back then PTSD was just kind of introducing itself into veterans so it was not something that was very publicized as as it is today so me going to file a claim to the va my thought and concept of the va was like that's for all people that's where vietnam veterans go right? So I had no ideas. I did not file my VA claim until 2016, Mm -hmm. 10 years after I left the military. Um, So I didn't even, I didn't even want to go. I didn't want to relive my trauma and having to talk about my trauma and the things that I went through, almost like if it is like just to prove that it was right to get a percentage of disability. Um, You know, it it was just not something that i wanted to do and just um learning about repatriating our patriots and learning what the organization was doing and how and how bad how in bad shape the veterans were in those countries that they were deported Um, they never some of them they never even spoke the language of that country because they left when they were maybe three or five years old Um, They didn't have any family back there. Uh, The Vietnam veterans were elderly and they really didn't know technology. So they couldn't fill out the forms to do anything. Um, So it was just, for me, it was just like, so you use it and discard it like nothing. And then one thing that I found out was that if you are a veteran, a service member, and you die while you're deported, you can come back to United States and be buried at a national cemetery in a box, but you can't come back alive. So you're telling me that I'm, I'm worth more to you death than alive. The same goes for if I would have, something would have happened to me in combat and I would have died, right? I would have been a hero. The same with the, uh, my fellow veterans who were deported, right? Something had happened to them and they would have been heroes. Who died in combat, serving their country, uh, but no, what they do is they don't get a second chance. What happens is double jeopardy. Um, they, you know, something happens and they uh, they end up in committing a felony, and they're not given the second chance that many Americans get um, at rehabilitation, at starting up over again after making a mistake. They don't get that they serve their sentence and then they're deported. Um, And to come back, you have to do something about your criminal record because that's what's keeping you from even applying for naturalization is the fact that you committed a felony. So it's the way um, I can tell you that if Americans knew that this is going on and how it is and how they go about it, they will probably, be very upset that this is happening. Because I mean, at the end of the day, Americans are very supportive of our military, and they don't really care whether you're from. If you're wearing the uniform, or if you wore the uniform, you're, you're a veteran, you're a military person, and they want support for you. So just to find out that veterans were deported to countries, and they were homeless in a new country living in austerity, and making Earning or five dollars a day just to make to have a meal, living in shacks, and it's, it was just so disheartening that this was the environment that they were in. The, all of that, and then take not taking into consideration that they have trauma. So if it's hard for a veteran to seek medical assistance and find the resources here in United States while they have a roof over their head and probably transportation and support structure, imagine a veteran who's been deported to a country they never know and that they have not only physical but mental, um, you know, challenges that they have to navigate through. Uh, that to me is just, I, I can't believe we're doing that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really disheartening because I've, I've heard it both from the previous interviews and, and just the research that I've been able to do on on both programs but now my question with you both with your history with the the organization itself how many veterans you've been able to help and how many you have seen back this is this feels like it's going to be a bit of a tough question but out of the the number of veterans that you've been able to both locate and start assisting how many of them have not been able to come back home back to where the country that they call home that they served under in wealth status, in an actual living status.
1: So, um, we actually just had a Vietnam veteran that passed away, uh, after they denied their humanitarian parole for medical uh, care. Uh, they didn't think that it was, uh, critical enough for them to grant a humanitarian parole for this 75 year old man, Vietnam veteran to come and get the medical care. Um, at the VA uh, in El Paso, Texas. So he passed away the day after they denied his his uh, humanitarian parole. Uh, from this year, um, since there's a program and since President Joe Biden um, informed and created uh, this program, which is called InVETS, um, where it's DHS and the VA working together to help veterans process their humanitarian parole requests while at the same time, seeing if they can apply for their benefits and get some type of income coming. Um, since then, uh, uh, 65 veterans, all the way all, all across the borders have been able to receive a humanitarian parole and come to the United States and work on their case in um, their naturalization process. And or they have received a date to become to get their citizenship because their their legal and criminal record was vacated Um, and that has been all in help to um, help from pro bono lawyers like the organizations aclu um, immigrant defenders in california uh, public defenders in texas um, which is pro bono lawyers actually working through the process of Looking at their criminal case and seeing what options they have helping them file that humanitarian parole. Um, So out of the out of those 65 uh, veterans who have come across for now for a year now, they we uh, saw at least 10 to 15 denied um, and denied for various reasons. Uh, One of the reasons that DHS uses is that they want proof of reformation of character. They want to see that they have gone and done some type of therapy, some type of class, or some type of activity that is shows that is reforming their character. Well, if they're only earning $5 a day and they're using that to pay for their food and their lodging, how do you expect them to go and work on their reformation? it's it's insane right so um it's very hard in what they they really don't give us specific reasons why it was denied but they give us the general aspect of uh well it's you know it's it's not it's because of the criminal activity or the criminal uh record it's not a safe and a good thing to allow them back into the united states so We have serial murders, right? In the United States who've been given, served their sentence, be given a second chance at reformation, Uh, but you can't do that for anyone else. Uh, Not, I'm not saying that any of our veterans are uh, serial killers, but um, it's just like the crimes have been DUI. Uh, We had a Vietnam veteran who served 20 years of hard time in Texas for less than an ounce of cocaine and he did 20 years after those 20 years he was deported um, and not given another chance Uh, so it's it's very disheartening when first of all they don't have the money to pay for attorneys the attorneys who are pro bono are very limited and they're overworked Um, and you're taking their reformation as a um, uh, something that it's needed for them to approve it. Uh, when there are in condition, living conditions that are not only dangerous to themselves, to their life, but the lack of medical care to even begin that process, it's not there.
0: And so I definitely understand. It. And, and that's what the organization stands for, to be able to, regardless of the situation, be able to try it at least, well, not at least, to do the best and the most that we can to be able to get every single case, every single veteran back home, both from around the world. And something that kind of touched with me a little bit was what you said about how it's a DUI. It was less than a ounce of cocaine. It possibly could have been aggravated assault of some sort. It could have been a violent situation. These all kind of tie back if if i can make a basic observation just to a lot of what you you explained both for both your personal experience from from one being a combat veteran as well as just the the trauma of of these difficult experiences and that that's one of those things that i have heard from the from what they've made changes both with the VA with a lot of the the new system that they're trying to implement to be able to try to get more people paid out to for for a lot of these these problems that PTSD has caused with, with a lot of the veterans, those are things that should be handled and it should be taken into exception. But unfortunately how, how, like I said, I have been able to see both from the military side, both department of Homeland security and then just DOD in general is that they're, they're two different. They're, they're, they're all two similar organizations that function very differently without communication.
1: Yes, 100 percent. I agree. Um, And then there's the what we have experienced at the border is that it depends who's there that day at that time when you come and request a humanitarian parole or when you come and seek asylum. Uh, Depending how they're feeling, that's what you're going to get. There is no they have a policy, but they don't follow it. (laughs) There's actually several memorandums um, that uh, one of them was by Secretary Mayorka saying that their military service will be taken into consideration before deporting any veteran. Yet we cannot get a number from them to tell us how many have you deported. Why? Because they're not tracking that. They're not asking, hey, have you served in the military? Right. And they're not contacted anybody to say hey we have a veteran here who served in the military who's not a US citizen and he's about to be released from prison like is there any resources like they're not doing any of that um, despite the memorandums and the policies that are in place and um, there is a GA um, a report that was published uh, when I say a couple years ago that says that Despite the policies uh, and the rules that they have for DHS, they are not tracking how many have the, they have deported. So we really don't know how many are deported, how many are out in um, in other countries that simply just are not close to a border, and they're not technologically savvy to be able to to hear to hear or learn about all these things that are changing and happening right now.
0: Yeah, because even even though we've made great strides in to be able to communicate with both. Every single person around the world. Let's let's be realistic with that. We can we can reach out to your grandparents. We can reach out to a random stranger in Asia, in Siberia, in in the Arctic, in Antarctica. But somehow this is still becoming one of the most difficult things that that seems nearly impossible trying to get, and not just specifically for for deported veterans, but just trying to find where where all of our veterans are, mm-hmm. and it's
1: yeah. We have asked. Uh, we have asked uh, federal prisons for reports on how many service members there currently have um, uh, serving sentences. Um, we don't. We really don't get any feedback. Like that is not something that is a priority. Um, there's a couple of states who have actually passed um, and have implemented. Um, a form that is basically a checkbox whenever they come after they commit their crime and they're brought into the station for intake. One of the checkbox in that form that they fill out is have you served in the military? So now they can track, right? So now that state is tracking service members who come in uh, for a felony. There is this program that is called veterans treatment court, mm-hmm. uh, which is for veterans who, um, come in and are apprehended for either um, uh, drug and alcohol or um, domestic uh, domestic violence and once they get that veteran they contact veterans treatment court and those veterans are given an opportunity to go through programs uh, to you know either with alcohol is anonymous or ptsd treatment right to have their felony vacated from the record but that does that um, does not trigger any other type of felony it's only for drugs and alcohol like that's it um and so if if you don't fall into those two things the veterans treatment court is not going to be notified they're not going to be notified that you're not a citizen and that you will be facing deportation after serving your sentence so there's uh there's a lot of room for education within our community and our law enforcement offices and organizations in in the city just to be aware of um, the resources that veterans continue to need. Like you said, um, a lot of us come back with um, whether it's a a mental injury or a physical injury and we really struggle to kind of overcome that and uh, cope and the right way. Uh, There's, I live, I want to say 45 minutes from uh, the VA hospital, and it took me 10 years to file my claim. It took me even longer to begin uh, my treatment, uh, mental health, and everything else. And I I live in the United States, and I have a vehicle, I have a home. Um, Imagine how difficult that is for a Vietnam veteran who is out in the middle of Guatemala with no resources, um, after being deported for over twenty years.
0: Yeah, no, and it's very true. With with all of this though, with everything that you've explained on on trying to get in contact with as many veterans, with as many and to be able to provide as much support as possible. Now that we've begun twenty twenty three, what is the the organization's main goal for the year as well as moving forward past twenty twenty three now that we have now that we're actually gaining traction, as as I said, I've been doing a little bit of research. I can't remember what the the house bill was, but I know it's it's still being tracked. It's being sponsored by the, was it the governor or senator of California. And as well as another one from Arizona and Texas, if I uh, if I can remember that correctly, with with all of that. And at least these small steps towards getting as many veterans as possible. What is what is one of the main goals that that you guys are striving for?
1: So our, one of the main goals is to be able to go out to other countries and find these veterans who are not at a border town, who are not able to file forms or have an attorney or have any information on how to do this to come back. Uh, some of them don't even know that it's a possibility for them to come back. Uh, They know they've been deported and that's it. You know, now they have to figure out how to survive. So one of our main goals is to do more, continue to do outreach to other countries and visit those veterans and connect them to legal resources, uh, legal pro bono resources here in the United States to begin the process of repatriation. Um, At the same time, we're working very closely with the Department of the VA to make sure that we can, if possible, and if they qualify to file a pension claim, uh, because those are, are a lot easier than, um, uh, uh, I guess, a disability claim. Um, those are easier to get approved and that will give them some type of income to continue to survive as they're through the process. So that's our one of our main goals, is to continue to do the outreach to places where No other organization is doing outreach. Um, Secondly, education, educating our community on what the problem is and how they can help. What type of resources and services they can uh, provide to veterans who do come back. Uh, We have veterans who, for example, in El Paso, we have veterans who come uh, under a humanitarian parole. So usually it's a year. They have a humanitarian parole for a year. They cannot work for the first three months and they likely don't have any housing or any transportation. So they're really reliant on having a support system uh, to the state where they came back to, having family, having somebody who can help them navigate. It's almost like the reintegration that service members go through when they come back from deployment. It's similar to the reintegration that the Veterans come uh, go through when coming back into the United States. So what we have been doing is we have been building partnerships and networking with community, the community in El Paso, Texas, with organizations such as the HUDVASH, Vash, um, people who will do employment after they uh, receive their um, their approval to uh, begin working. And then housing, uh, transportation, uh, all of that, while at the same time navigating the VA to get them the, the healthcare that they need and that they've earned. Um, so continue to do the outreach to other countries um, and to um, build a network uh, with the communities, to have the communities help, to have, to welcome back a productive member of society, uh, but that's just not going to happen overnight, right? Um, in order for them to do that, if if a veteran comes back and they have no family because they've been deported for twenty years, they moved on, nobody really, they don't have a support system, then that veteran may end up uh, homeless and back into the same like cycle of you know having either to steal or do drugs or just because of their environment, right? So if they're deported again, if they commit a crime again, that is for life. You, There is no humanitarian parole. There is nothing that will allow you to be repatriated again. So in order for us to make sure that they have a successful reintegration after being deported, our communities need the education to know what the problem is, how it's happening, and how can they help. Uh, we have been very successful with the El Paso community. They, um, the community, all of the uh, commissioners there are on board. The VA has been amazing at being flexible with the lack of uh, documentation that these veterans have, beginning with an ID, right? They don't have any ID. The ID that they have is probably from the country that they came from, which is not valid. Um, in a lot of places in the United States. Um, just with the VA accessibility, the healthcare that they need, um, it, it's just, they have been amazing at just giving those services and being flexible and doing the outreach for them to receive HUD, um, HUD bashes to get housing, uh, Section A housing. Uh, for them to be able to receive even like food stamps or some type of assistance to get them, keep them going as they're navigating this.
0: Got it. So with all this information and, and everything to that you guys are already striving for, what are some ways that us as the community, as both service members, prior service members, both sons, daughters, and, and parents of immigrants that, that have served the country in In faithful service to be able to protect it, what can we do to be able to help out and spread the word?
1: So um, one of the things that we are asking everyone to do is if you know a current active duty or currently serving service member who is not a US citizen, encourage them to seek their citizenship before they leave the military Um, and how important it is. What are some of the things that could happen if they don't get their citizenship if they end up leaving the military without it. Um, just doing that outreach and talking about this topic and what is happening, uh, that's how you guys can do the most help. Uh, we have actually um, gained some momentum this year because of how, um, how persistent we have been on doing interviews like this, um, doing social media and just sharing the content. In um, the lives and pictures of what our veterans are. Um, second, it's donations. Uh, right now, we have one of our um, Nick Paz. He's our humanitarian liaison. He is the one that travels to other countries, and he's he's a combat veteran, um, and he uses his personal money to travel to these countries. Uh, our organization uh, is not very successful at receiving grants because our mission is a very unique mission Uh, we are serving veterans who are not in the united states we are serving veterans with a criminal record Um, and so the funding that we need uh has been either through um, donations or t-shirt sales and um uh, several fundraisers that we that we've done um so we're really moving mountains with pennies Uh, and when i say pennies i'm telling you we have about three thousand dollars in our bank account Um, and that's we that's what we operate on Um, so donations to our organization at repatriateourpatriots.org and just sharing the messes, sharing what's happening and to those veterans who have not received their citizenship to encourage them to find the resources to do so before they leave the military.
0: Perfect. And then to, we well, closing it off as well. Do you have any questions for me? Do you have any final comments or another message that you want to, to send out to just to anybody in general, either active duty, other veterans, or just the community in general?
1: Um, I just want to let everyone know that, um, our, there are veterans who are deported and immigration, um in immigration reform it's a lot more than just criminals trying to come illegally across the border immigration impacts uh in a lot of different ways and i do, will just um ask to inform yourself on how it's impacting our military and um how it's impacting our communities because the families that are left behind after that veteran is deported go through tremendous hardship and they are really disconnected from the military family circle and community that supports each other so uh, i would just say just get information be educated on on the topic and just uh see where you can help
0: got it so with all that information to to close it off thank you danita thank you Ms. james for, for being a part of the ESL sessions and Mi Comunidad on this very special, very special episode, because as well, like I said, it hits both home for me as a current active duty service member, as a prior immigrant, but also as somebody who, who wants to help as much as I can. And and as well, thank you for all that you've done so far, as well as the Repatriate Our Patriots organization so far, since, since you've been a part of it, since since before you were part of it and then any other organizations that have been helping out um thank you thank you again for for being a guest on on this podcast
1: yeah thank you for having me
0: well not a problem so we're gonna go ahead and and sign it off right there you guys heard it if you guys can get as much information as possible I will go ahead and provide that on the link in the comments, as well as different locations on the post, both on Instagram and Facebook. And that way you can get in touch with them. So thank you again, Ms. James. Thank you again, Danita, and have a good night. Thank you.